This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Gabrielle Jackson. Gabrielle is an associate news editor for The Guardian Australia and she's written a new book called Pain and Prejudice, a call to arms for women and their bodies. We talk about the inequities that women face in our healthcare system. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. I now have with me in the studio the wonderful Gabrielle Jackson, and she's here to talk about a book which is called Pain and Prejudice, and uh, the subtitle is A Call to Arms for Women and Their Bodies. Um, it definitely is a call to arms, and I'm really excited that you can partake in this call to arms with us. Um, we're going to be talking about women's pain and bodies and health, so it's all going to be happening in this last hour of Uncommon Sense. Hi there, Gabrielle. Hi, Amy. Hi. And in your day job, you are a, a news editor at The Guardian Australia, which must be a pretty demanding yeah, job. Yeah, it is. It's quite hectic, actually, <laughs> yeah. but I love it, luckily. <laughs> yeah, and, um, and I mean, this book that you've written is not only from a research scientific perspective, but you have also a very much a, a personal experience which informs this book, um, which is also really important and interesting and I know would be valuable to a lot of women listening who may not understand some of the illnesses that have only recently become you know, well-known or mm. even just referenced or discussed in the media. Yeah. Um, and I'm thinking in particular of endometriosis, which is, you know, really getting traction now in terms of the, the prominence that it's mm. had. And finally, an action plan from our health minister um, to start the ball rolling. Um, but how did you get to this point where you decided, I need to write a book about women's health and women's pain and how the medical system treats women um, and particularly, I guess, downplays and almost gaslights women, I would say. Yeah, exactly. That's what that's what happens. That's a really good way to put it. Um, so, you know, I think my story is really common um, and very typical. I had, you know, started with terrible period pain in my teens. You know, I was the girl in sick bay every month, my mum picking me up month after month. And um, I would have these incredible bouts of fatigue I was diagnosed as a teenager with chronic fatigue syndrome and then um you know that didn't really you know got better for a little while but this ongoing pain happened in in my early 20s I insisted my GP I had a female GP she just kept telling me yep some women have bad periods that's life and then I you know I just looked around and I didn't see anyone I knew suffering like I did so I insisted on a um, referral to a gynaecologist and I was really lucky that he was a, a gynaecologist who had a bit of a specialty in endometriosis and he was a very caring doctor. He was very um, lovely, explained it all to me, had a surgery and felt a lot better for a long time and kind of sent me on my way. But I had all these other problems in my life like back pain. I had a skiing accident when I was 19 so I put the back pain and leg pain and hip pain down to that and you know I had bowel problems and kind of headaches and nausea and all these other things and I just came to kind of think of myself as a hypochondriac. I was just kind of a weak person, a bit flakier than my friends and 
you kind of internalise that because you you try to prove yourself over and over again. I can be strong. I just have to work a bit harder. I just have to be stronger. And then, um, you know, my and I was getting much worse. And I went to this conference put on by um, a, an advocacy group called Endoactive, and that's a woman, Sylvia Friedman, and her mother Leslie, who just decided. You know, Sylvia got a diagnose, uh, diagnosis of endo and they were like, it's just not enough known, this is not right. So they put on a conference, they got Australia's best specialists into a room and invited patients along. And that was the first time that day I sat in that auditorium and listened to all these experts talk and then I realised that all these symptoms were all really common symptoms of endometriosis. They weren't a hundred different things. I wasn't just weak. I wasn't a hypochondria. I hadn't been making up all these things. Mm. And that is when I just thought, you know, I can't tell you how much I cried. I just sat in that room all day and I cried. I caught the bus home and I was trying to ring my mum and tell her and I couldn't even talk. I just cried. And I said, well, you know, I felt like a pretty knowledgeable person and if there's all this that I don't know, Mm. then how many other people don't know? And that's kind of what spurred me on. Yeah, and I know that a lot of people who are unwell for a long time but haven't been given a diagnosis or, like in your case, didn't put all the symptoms together and Mm. think they could all be, you know, caused by one or two things, um, that when they finally find out what's really wrong, they do cry and have this huge release of emotion and, you know, almost relief Mm. to know that it's real and there's something that is actually biologically causing it because of this constant, you know, social pressure and questioning and anxiety that women particularly get put under um, of like, but, you know, you complain a lot. Why are you in pain? Why are you telling us you're in pain? Mm. You know, keep it to yourself. Just be tough. Yeah. Um, And I just, you know, it's hard to imagine. Well, the thing about it is that no one likes the person who keeps complaining constantly. Mm. So I think women do internalise. I know I did. I didn't. If I complained every time I was in pain, I'd have no friends, you know. So you <laughs> yes. do you do keep it to yourself. You don't want to be a drag or the I mean, the person who's, you know, the whinger. And um, so it is an incredibly emotional experience to realise that these things were real and and that you're not as weak and hopeless as you thought you were. That's a that's a hard thing to deal with. Mm. Um I th- let's get into some of the elements of your book which mm-hmm. you know we already have been discussing but I want to get into some of the nitty-gritty. Let's start with where you start out which I think is fantastic to talk about women's bodies mm-hmm. and our anatomy and how amazing they are and also how very little many women know about our own bodies. Yeah, I was totally shocked at how little I knew about my body, to be honest. Um, And that's why I thought it was really important to start there so we can understand how our body functions and how it works and how when things aren't normal, that can be a sign that something's not going right. Um, But one of the most amazing things that I discovered when I was looking into, you know, all the functions of the female reproductive system is that, you know, there's this idea that, um, you know, the sperm is the go-getter and it Mm. swims along and it pierces the egg and that's the fertilisation process. When we've 
scientists have actually known for a really long time that that's not really how the fertilisation process works at all. The egg has a really active role in capturing the the sperm, the sperm is actually quite slippery and couldn't couldn't do anything without the eggs activation and capturing of the sperm. And you know, and that this really told me a story about how science has has created this story of a passive female and an active male and they've written it in at the cell line when it's not even true and when you write it in that cell line it's almost like it's natural and therefore has to be that way in the human world and that was never true Mm. (laughs) so you know all the way through medicine you know back to the beginnings of medicine I kept finding these assumptions which were never really based in fact Oh, there are so many. It's yeah. like kind of disturbing. There's a whole chapter on hysteria, which mm. is, you know, people would say, and it is a very gendered insult, I'll stop being hysterical. Oh, absolutely. Just, you know, you're being emotional. Um, and this this kind of idea that women are irrational, ruled by their emotions. Their, all their hormones. Yeah, all their, exactly, mm. their hormones. They're unstable, they're moody. Um, there's so many stereotypes that are completely unfounded and have been used to keep women down, essentially, Mm. to keep them in their place, to stay in the home and to not be, um, I guess, at the same level of participation in society as men. And, of course, we have, like, changed a lot from the 19th century in that regard, but we still have this um, hangover of systemic sexism that exists in the medical profession but also even just like in our own sex education and in our own, um, yeah, like discussions of women's health with each other. Yeah, As exactly. women to women even when we talk about our issues or women to doctor, GP, mm-hmm. your first point port of call when you have an issue. Um, so you kind of go through some of the functions and parts of an female anatomy that are amazing um, and one that many people know about or have heard about which is the clitoris many people may not realize how phenomenal it is and also that it's not one tiny point Mm. that it's a huge um you know and organ, that, organ, yeah, yeah that exactly. sits it's below the surface. Literally. Yeah, even the Oxford Dictionary still defines it as a you know pea-sized organ that sticks out on the outside. That's only what you can see. The majority yeah. of the organ is actually beneath the surface. But that wasn't until the nineties that an, even an MRI was done of done on the clitoris and that we could see it. And it was actually an Australian female urologist who was the one who discovered. Um, the full, you know, anatomy of mm. the clitoris, even though it had been known in the 18th century and then conveniently forgotten, um, this female. And, and so for the first time, surgery on uh, women and women with female sex organs, anatomy was able to be done while trying to maintain sexual function, something that's always been done on men, but something that was never considered for women. So women would ha- would lose their sexual function because they're, you know, the clitoris just wasn't considered in surgery and it would be, yeah. you know, the nerve endings would be, you know, lost and whatnot. But, you know, that's changing and that's really a recent change. Yeah, it's scary really, isn't it, that it's it's been unintentionally damaged through mm. surgery but also still today intentionally mm. mutilated. Well, that's the thing, yes. Yeah. And that's just, um, you know, there's all these methods of control of women and I think that's a really interesting 
aspect of this because on the one hand, you know, society tries to tell us that women are naturally chaste and passive and men are the ones that, you know, go get them. But then they've used all these methods of control to stop her cheating mm. or, you know, having sexual freedom. So it can't be both of those things. And I think female genital mutilation is the most extreme version of that where, you know, they literally cut off her clitoris so she can't enjoy sex because then she won't want to have sex with other people other than her husband. Not to mention why would she, if it's that painful, yeah. want to have sex, sex at, all. at all yeah. Yeah, with anyone? Um, how terrible. It is horrible. Um, and it's really amazing to think that there are 8,000 nerve endings um, in the tip of the clitoris. Mm. That's like It's a really huge. sensitive organ, yeah. yeah. And even the labia have nerve endings too. And now we see this, you know, popularity of labiaplasty happening because mm. this is another thing. Girls aren't taught in in their sex education that the labia grows in puberty and that it changes shape and you they will start changing shape and one will grow longer than the other. And so when that starts happening and the only images you're ever exposed to are porn, then of course people get worried and think they're not normal. Mm. But a lot of women lose sexual function. Well, some women lose sexual function in that procedure and that's something that's often not explained to them. Indeed. Um, and it has like you just quote the statistics about the fact that it's like massively increased in the last 10 to 15 mm. years in terms of elective cosmetic surgery in that region. Yes, and I think that um, an Australian study showed that um, more than half of GPs had been asked about it and and sometimes I think the third of the people asking were under 18 and so they haven't even finished developing yet. That's really risky and mm. really scary that um, people are so worried about being normal quote unquote town you know in their private anatomy mm. when they're obviously not being exposed to normal anatomy at all and or at school or in their sex education mm. to know that there's actually no no such thing as a normal vulva exactly and one thing that um uh, was interesting to me when I was thinking about this issue and we're talking about what's normal and also like the social expectations that are put on women mm. in particular around sex a lot of women um, and you mentioned their pornography would feel a lot of pressure to um, wax completely and I didn't even realise apparently that pubic hair has a really important health role in preventing infection of a range of kinds. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, it's just it, it's it's crazy how how we can put ourselves at risk for the benefit of some kind of societal norm or what's considered beauty. Yeah, it's really distressing, and I think it's something we need to think about you know, really carefully when we're asking women to suffer in order to be good or beautiful mm. or attractive in some way. And pay a lot of money, presumably. Well, exactly. And look, the amount of money we pay on all these, you know, makeup and beauty and waxing and all the other things and the attention that takes, that takes a lot of our time, time a mm. lot of our brain processing that could be better used, you know, making the world a better place or, you know, reading or yeah <laughs> so it's a lot of our time and our money taken mm. away from the pursuits of men what they are doing and for what benefit actually exactly. just for a disbenefit you know, yeah. to make up a word there <laughs> <laughs> 
That's so good. Um, we're go- I'm, I'm also really interested in this fact that you raise that women have to spend so much money even just to menstruate like, and or have a withdrawal bleed if they're using contraception and have a withdrawal bleed. Like women have to spend a minimum amount of money on essential items mm. that are just something you need to make sure that you don't have mass- massive health issues. Yeah, because, you know, um, poor hygiene during menstruation can cause a lot of issues um, and that's proven. I think, you know, in India the statistic is something like 70% of um you know, female illnesses are caused by some kind of poor menstruation hygiene. Uh, It's, you know, this is healthy. This is part of being a healthy individual. It's not, Mm. you know, a luxury product. It's not something that we want to do. It's just a basic fact of being a healthy woman or person with female sex organs. You know, be a basic human right. Mm. Um, Let's talk a bit about women's health, but not just, as you say, the reproductive system. Of course, that is a defining difference between a female sex and a male sex is usually there is a, you know, um, the male reproductive system and a penis and women having vulva, which is the outside, we should say, Mm. so that people know, because that is one of your other points in the book, is that people often don't realise that the vagina is inside, it's mm. interior, and the vulva is the outside. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and, and if you know, vagina has become like a social phrase to, in, to capture all of it, and that's fine. Mm. But as long as we know the anatomical terms are different and, and we're taught that they're different. So when we do go to our doctor and start talking, that we can, we can tell them exactly what's feeling different or what's feeling a bit weird or where their lump is. Mm. You know, I, I talked to a... Um, um, someone in the UK and there was a doctor who had like a full 10-minute consultation with a patient who was talking about her waterworks. So the doctor thought she was talking about her bladder and explaining all these issues and it was only like at the end of the consultation she realised she was actually bringing up, trying to raise gynaecological issues but she didn't know any terms and was too embarrassed to mm. say them. And, you know, this is this could be killing us. You know, this embarrassment, this shame is, um, you know, what purpose does it serve? It only serves a purpose to keep women sick and, you know, in poor health. Mm. You talk about painful periods and that is something which I think a lot of women would be putting up with without realising perhaps Mm. it disrupts their life if it stops them from going to work or, you know, from engaging in their day-to-day activities. Exactly. certainly is a concern, but women's pain, as you highlight in this book, is often dismissed or not taken seriously. There's another area where women's pain isn't taken seriously, which is in sex. And it's quite a common uh, thing for Mm. women to experience a range of... um, issues relating to pain during sex, including things like vaginismus, Mm -hmm. which is around uh, muscles tightening and contracting, and um, that causes a lot of pain. There's dyspareunia. There's a whole range of things that um, many women would 
think, oh, well, I'll just, you know, have to put up with it. Maybe that's just how it is. Mm. Yeah, studies show that about a third of women have painful vaginal sex and and just over 70% have fine sex painful. And a lot of them just think they have to put up with it and they don't. The, the good news is there's a lot of really good help for, for um, sexual pain now. Mm. Um, a lot of sexologists and a lot of women's health physiotherapists can really, really help. And, you know, um, I spoke to this amazing woman, Emmalina, and she's a sex researcher, and she says, you know, Pain in sex, unless it's kind of raunchy and you want it, a bit of slapping or something like that, mm. is never normal and you should mm. always investigate that and there's a lot of help. Um, so she says, yeah, the only two th- things that are bad, I think, are like non-consent and pain, you know, everything else, you know, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, yeah, it's something that women, I don't think, and also men probably don't talk about that often. No, of course, because um, men also feel shame around this stuff. And I should also say, I talk about a lot of chronic pain conditions Mm. that mainly affect women, but the men who have those conditions, you know, fare really poorly too. And often their very masculinity is questioned when they go in with fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue syndrome Mm. or Men get pelvic pain too at a much lower rate, but they they do really poorly and that's not good for them either. You know, that's why studying everyone can benefit everyone, you know, rather than just the average, whatever that is, man. But, um, yeah, so I think that... um, you know, when it comes to sex, there's this, this social stereotypes that men want sex all the time, mm. they're ready for it. And that's not, you know, it's not a male women thing. Humans have a full range of desire. And um, again, Emily Nagoski told me that she wrote about um, desire in the New York Times. And she wrote about how for many women, it's not just spontaneous when you're relaxed and feeling good. And, and then something you feel something quite pleasurable. That's when desire comes. And she said she actually heard from more men than women after writing that because they said, this is how I experienced desire and I've always thought there's something wrong with me because, you know, I've always been told that men should just be ready for sex anytime, anywhere. Mm. And that's just not the reality. So, um, you know, I think it's really when we talk about women's different experiences of sexual pleasure and desire, we also open up a space where men who don't fit that cultural stereotype can talk their different experiences as well. Mm, Exactly. And, you know, Certainly, I think it's probably not discussed or acknowledged that, you know, women would have fluctuating sex drives across their cycle, but also across their life. Exactly. I mean, stress is not, is going to dent anyone's desire. So if you're totally stressed, you've got young kids, you're getting them ready, you're doing the housework, you've got a job, like, you know, that is going to put a huge dent in your Desire, And that's why, you know, your well-being is so linked to your sexual health. And we shouldn't just think of sexual health as something on the side. It's actually part of our full humanity to be able to, um, you know, experience sexual pleasure. For a lot of people, if you, Mm. you know, there's asexual people and that's fine, that's their choice too. But a lot of people do want um, a fulfilling relationship with whoever that is and, and they want to have pleasure in their lives. And, and for some of them, pain is a major barrier to that. Indeed. Um, hopefully people do feel like they can at least raise it with their GPs. 
Yes. And, and realise that there are services out there for them to access, including, I believe, at the Royal Women's Hospital. Oh, that's great news. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, we are embarrassed to talk about it. And, and I think doctors are often embarrassed to bring it up, especially if they're a male doctor and a female patient, because now mm. there's all these things that, oh, am I being a pervert, you know, like, but we have to believe that a healthy, being a healthy sexual being is part of being a healthy human. And so I don't think we should should be embarrassed to bring it up with our doctors. Mm. Absolutely. Um, One of the issues that you raise as being something that disproportionately affects women that we may not realise and that is very, very poorly treated is chronic pain. And Mm. chronic pain is caused by so many different things. Um, So there's no way that we could possibly cover the the ways that Mm. one could get chronic pain Mm. Um, but you do say that women experience it a huge amount more than women I believe it was about 70 70 percent of people with chronic pain are women and it starts at a really young age Um, so science now has established that women have more intense pain and for longer periods than men and they're also less likely to have that treated than mm. men. So it's a real pickle we're in. Um, and, and despite 70% of chronic pain patients being women, 80% of pain drugs have been tested on men or male mice. So, you know, I spoke to this pain researcher who said, we probably have tested drugs that would work on women and we've thrown them in the bin because they don't test on men. And it was only in 2016 that the National Institutes of Health, which is a a US government organisation, which is the biggest funder of research in the world, said if you're studying pain, you have to include female rodents in your Mm -hmm. preclinical studies. It was only a couple of years ago. It's crazy. Yeah. And you're right. Like we, medicine is split into these different specialties that all look at different parts. So the gynecologist does this, the, you know, um, urologist does that and the orthopaedic surgeon looks at bones and they, they look at everything separately. But pain doesn't work that way. Pain it, it works across all those symptoms and it's perceived in the central nervous system and the brain. And, um, you know, medicine acknowledges that they're really far behind in the in in understanding chronic pain mm. Mm. and there are so many different um ways that it could be experienced as well like you there's neurological pain mm-hmm. and then there's muscular pain and inflammatory pain and there's sometimes overlapping you know in those areas yeah. um, but it means that there are different ways of treating it that are effective or ineffective and also that are taboo um particularly i'm thinking uh any kind of painkillers now Mm. nowadays there's a lot of reluctance and apprehension around prescription painkillers but there are a lot of people who that's their last option to be not in pain all the time so it's quite an inadequate approach um that medicine continues to take which given that as you say women are more affected by pain are also you know dealing with that reality more than men Mm. it's a really complex and and difficult issue to unpick Um, I will say that there are some treatments that work for some people but it's a bit of a trial and error basis because you know not not the thing that works for me won't work for the next woman or the next person with chronic pain but um, there are some things that work and you you kind of have to be willing to well, 
you know, it's really difficult because it's, it's the onus shouldn't be on women to make changes because mm. um, sometimes the more you demand and the more doctors you go to in order to get a diagnosis ends up working against you and they think that's evidence of you being hysterical instead of evidence of you wanting your pain treated. Um, but, you know, there are doctors out there who care, who have some tools who are willing to try. And I, I think, you know, the best thing that I think you can do is, you know, have a GP who you trust and who trusts you and who you know and you go to the same GP all the time. Mm. I think that's that's our best chance for getting good treatment at the moment. But, yeah, there is evidence that, uh, that once you get one of these chronic pain conditions that you're sensitised to other chronic pain conditions. And, yes, it's true that opioids, the prescription painkillers do make chronic pain worse and that's why doctors will be really reluctant to give them to chronic pain patients because it creates more and more pain and more problems Mm. Um, but pain also shouldn't be just put up with especially you know you were talking about period pain a bit earlier and you know women are told it's normal and so there's this kind of I'll just be stoic and I'll put up with it but Mm. actually having bad period pain over a long period of time can actually create more chronic pain conditions in your later life. So by putting up with it from a young age, you could be setting yourself up for a lifetime of pain conditions. So don't put up with, mm. if, you know, pain Pain on the first one or two days of bleeding that can be managed by the contraceptive pill or taking neurofen and paracetamol or naprogesic, one of those things. That's totally normal. But as you say, if it starts to interfere with your life, you can't go to school, you can't go to work, you've given up a sport, you're not showing up to social functions, that's when you need to get it investigated and, and start getting it treated because mm. putting up with it could just be setting you up for, for worse down the line. Indeed. And in terms of women and illnesses that do disproportionately affect them, one of the most harrowing categories of illness is autoimmune illnesses, Mm. which are exceptionally complex. They're multi-system, which means they affect multiple organs often. And so then you get on that roundabout of seeing multiple specialists because there's not one specialist who could deal with Mm. the one you know, illness that you might finally get diagnosed with. And um, you, you write the fact that delay, there are major delays in being diagnosed. Major. For, mm. And because a lot of these um, illnesses have symptoms that overlap with one another, there's a lot of murkiness. Mm. And often um, I've, you know, heard and seen doctors kind of throw up their hands and say, oh, it's too complicated or, oh, you've got all these symptoms. They don't fit neatly into this one illness. So mm. it must not be that. Yeah, look, I think this is really hard for doctors because no doctor leaves medical school with all the tools required to help them manage a chronic pain patient or an autoimmune, you know, patient with an autoimmune disease. Having said that, you know, medicine has known for you know, 100 years that women are more likely to have autoimmune conditions than men. They know that the female and male autoimmune systems work differently, that women produce more antibodies and um, why maybe one of the reasons women live longer, they survive illnesses that would kill men. Um, and and when so therefore when men have autoimmune conditions, they tend to be more severe than in women. Mm. But the vast majority of autoimmune patients are women again. So we've known that for 100 years. Why hasn't anyone looked into it what's going on here and um 
you know, Susan Evans, a gynaecologist and pain physician who I re- interview in my book, says that she has patients coming to her all the time saying, oh, God, my, my GP says I'm a mystery. And she says, oh, really? You sound exactly the same as the person I just saw before you and the person before that and the person before that. And it is true. It's hard yeah. because, you know, they're not equipped with this information. They don't have the tools yet. But if you really listen to patients and you... And you uh, listen to their symptoms actually there is a pretty common picture painted and um you know evans has basically worked out more about how endometriosis and chronic pelvic pain works through 20 years of collecting patient questionnaires than from any of the research. That's really Mm. informing her research going forward because she now realises that having endometriosis is not necessarily the cause of the pain. The cause of the chronic pain and the multi-system pain, you know, a lot of people with endo or pelvic pain also have bladder, painful bladder syndrome or irritable bowel syndrome. They have muscle spasms in their pelvic floor muscles and they have dizziness and nausea and fatigue. And, um, you know, this has always been a mystery. But now she's worked out that people with bad period pain have all those symptoms, not necessarily with or without endo. Some people mm. have endometriosis and don't have any of those symptoms. Um, but it's actually chronic, uh, really bad period pain ongoing for many years that is, um, you know, the key, the, the key factor in all of those other symptoms. Indeed. And so when a doctor can't find a pathology, as in something to show up on a scan, where does that leave women? Yeah, that's, this is it. This is the pain that can't be seen. Mm. And it, because it doesn't show up on an x-ray or a scan, they think it's... Medicine has traditionally believed that that must be in their mind, must be psychological, you must be making it up. But now we know that... Um, it, this, it's, it's, they believe it's the sensitisation of the central nervous system, that the pain pathways become sensitised and, you, you know, that they don't have the tools to show that yet on a scan. Um, there's some kind of FRM, fMRIs that are starting to show bits of it but really this is the beginning of chronic pain research. We're right mm. at the beginning and it's really hard to get grants because it doesn't fit into the normal research grant process um, and so this is this is something that really a lot of money and time and effort needs to go into understanding better. Yeah. One of the points you made that stuck out to me is that when a doctor or medical student is being trained, they're not really equipped with how to deal with a situation when you can't figure out what's wrong. And instead as we've kind of indicated, often a, an arbitrary label gets placed on patients mm. and it could be something like um, conversion disorder, which is something that uh, Jennifer Breyer, who was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome um, eventually and another um, biological issue that actually explained the chronic fatigue syndrome, but she had that um, labelled onto her Mm. as soon as she got unwell. As you said, there's medically unexplained illness, Mm. which is kind of like a very vague label. There's also um, functional disorders. So you've got a functional neurological system. We can't explain it through biology, so it must be caused by something else other than your biology, Mm. um, which, you know, read between the lines yeah they're just modern words for hysteria yeah Mm. and and what is also quite disturbing is that a lot of people I believe um are misdiagnosed with things like fibromyalgia because it 
does cover such a broad range of symptoms that people just put you in that basket because, oh, well, at least then you've got a label. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I looking back now, as I said earlier, I was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome. I don't fit that diagnosis at all. Now that mm. I've looked into it and looked at the criteria, I don't. And I recognise what I was going through as a kind of endometriosis flare-up. I have these flare-ups every now and again. But now I know that they're not going to last and it's much easier to cope with. But that happens all the time, misdiagnosis, getting put in a basket just to kind of shut you up because they think you're hysterical and you just want a diagnosis because mm. you're anxious about your health or whatever. But, you know, I think that the, the medical schools aren't really teaching students to, to deal with medical uncertainty. Like, of course, medicine doesn't know everything about the human body and they may never know everything about the human body, but mm. they're not. that's not really trained. You know, one, one GP I interviewed for the book said, you know, we're kind of taught we can either cure people or palliate people. But there was nothing that prepared me for all the patients who would come in with all these symptoms who I couldn't cure, but they weren't dying. And I didn't know what to do with them. And, um, you know, she found this wonderful mentor. And, um, and that's how she learned how to deal with these chronic pain patients. But that's, you know, you have to be lucky to find the right mentor. Mm. And what makes me um, have hope is that there are so many, well, pretty much every doctor who goes into medicine has excellent intentions and wants to help people. Um, and so they're motivated to help and they want to solve problems and to get to the bottom of things for other people. So there is this underlying goodwill in general to do that but then we get lost along the way and there's unconscious bias that exists there's also conscious bias Mm. um, and you know everyday sexism and systemic sexism and these as you say kinds of sexism and discrimination exists not just in medicine but across a woman's life Mm. in her workplace Mm -hmm. um, in her home in In her social life yeah exactly Mm. in the justice system I mean this is something that is not confined to medicine but it's very rare that it has been really looked at in such great depth um, and to looked at the the various facets of how gender and sex can affect uh, outcomes in medicine mm. and I think that was one of the things that really um, I think was really instructive for me I didn't se- didn't set out to have this chapter on medical practice but once I started looking at it I realized oh, this is why it's happening our medical system firstly isn't set up to deal with chronic um, conditions at all but that every step of the way everything about women's health is really deprioritized you know the the what uh, what you get what a doctor gets paid to do anything to a woman is so small the, the most the most poorly paid specialties are gps gynecologists you know mm. um so everything about women's health is really undervalued and um if you look after a chronic pain patient and you do it well, you basically end up losing money. That's how our medical system treats, you know, chronic pain conditions. So, you know, when you do find a doctor who gives you the time and understanding, it's like, you know, they're probably earning less than all their colleagues mm, by doing that. Yeah. Uh, the one example that really sticks out for me is um, the insertion of the marina. So a doctor has to get an extra qualification to be able to put in an IUD device and um, a nurse is usually present, has to be there for it, and Medicare pays them $57 or something like that for that. Now, 
the time it takes to do the insertion of the marina, another doctor could have seen three patients and could have earned double what that doctor and the nurse earns. So what is the incentives for doctors to go and get that extra qualification and to do it? It's yeah, amazing. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I just no, get no. so worked up about this because everything is going against a woman getting yeah. good treatment. And, you know, it's not, that's why I say it's not doctors' faults mm. that they're not treating women well. I mean, of course, you know, there's, it's just part of being human to listen to people and kind of first up believe what they're telling you. But there's a lot that has to change. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, Gabrielle, it's been so fantastic to speak with you and I really hope people can read your book because there's so many things that we've not even mentioned yet and um, it is really vitally important and, as you say, it's a call to arms and I think um, it really benefits men and women um, to read this and doctors and patients and politicians as well to understand this issue and how the system itself works against women and um, how we can empower doctors as well as patients to have a better um, relationship. Mm. Yeah, so many doctors have been supporting this book. They're like, at last someone's talking about this. We want more information. We want to be able to help people better. So Exactly. Yeah, it's great in that way. Totally. Thank you so much for for doing this and and good luck on the rest of your tour. And also I think there's an event tonight at Readings. Readings in Carlton, yes. Awesome. So people can get along at 6.30. Yes. Awesome. Thank you No doubt it will be a great conversation. I hope so. (laughs) I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.